0: Fresh Economic Thinking podcast, new
1: ideas and analysis with Dr. Cameron Murray and Jonathan Gadir. We have a super system. We have it. So we're not in imaginary land anymore about what we would do. So we have this system. Um, And let's talk about a few things about this system. And especially it's been in the news in the last week. It's some hot topics that I want to get into. Firstly, people have been speculating for years that Super will one day be opened up to allow the individual to buy their first home. Now, we already have the first home super saver scheme, and I know that you can already buy property through a self-managed super fund. Would you be in favor of eventually allowing people to buy a home using super? Um, and what would the fallout for that be? Scott, I'll kick it over to you for this one to start off with.
0: Uh No because adding more money to the housing market just pushes prices up unless you change supply or demand in terms of population. So to add, giving, giving people more money to chase the same assets is just a, a recipe for, frankly, we're talking about old people, <laughs> Put, putting money in the hands of old people because all of a sudden young people can afford to pay more for their houses. Um, I, think it's a, I think it's a crazy idea. I think it's, it's akin to the first home buyer's scheme and first home buyer's grants and all the rest of that rubbish that just puts money into the hands of sellers because uh, we all compete with each other with larger and larger piggy banks. So, again, regardless of super itself, get rid of it. I'd also get rid of the first home super saver scheme, which, uh, again, talk about paperwork and just rubbish bureaucracy. Just just kill it off. If the government wants to, give give first home buyers X percent more. You get a tax break of whatever it is. Turn that tax break into a bonus. Okay, you buy your first house. Here's fifteen grand, having to put it in this bloody stupid scheme, then pull it back out again and fill out a form for the ATO. It was, it was, a, it was a stupid idea in the first place. It's bureaucracy run mad and politicians wanting to be seen to be doing something. Makes absolutely zero sense.
2: Interesting. So I used to have that exact same view, Scott, and now I don't. So let <laughs> okay. me. Um, what we'll changed? What changed? A few things. So, you know, if you remember the Royal Commission in 2017 into banking and insurance, one of the outcomes of that was that banks repriced mortgages. So investor mortgages had a higher interest rate than owner occupier mortgages. So that spread went from like a quarter of a percent, 25 basis points, up to like. A whole one one percentage point, right? And what happened is first home buying increased quite rapidly from 2017 to up to COVID. It's at the end of 2019, and investor mortgages dropped. And in fact, investors became net sellers. And what we saw between the 2016 and 2021 census periods was that home ownership rates actually increased by 0.6 of a percent. So that's about 60,000 dwellings people, right? More than expected became their you know bought their own home so it's you know that's sort of the only thing that's worked to increase home ownership recently right in the last two decades uh in terms of using super for housing i always say that the best asset to own when you're retired is your own home why would we have a system like super where you can buy your next door neighbor's home but not your own home in your super account and that next-door neighbor can buy your home and you can rent off each other at market prices and then you know pay tax on your rental income like it just seems like kind of bizarre system so such are the advantages of being your own homeowner and the fact that I've learnt about Singapore for example where people use their compulsory savings to buy their own home i've kind of come to the view where it's actually fine in fact if i were to really be genuine about this you know, financial interest tests at super, right? Doing what's in the best financial interests of someone with super. It probably would be take your money out of super and buy a home. Like if you were genuine about that. So, and then the final point is we just had the biggest boom in first home buying since 20, 2009. That was a Kevin Rudd stimulus, I think. And I think we far exceeded that during COVID with, because people could withdraw their super, then use that as a deposit, right? We had the home builder scheme. We had super low interest rates. We had essentially double the first home buyers for two years in a row. So if you were going to allow super for first home buying, today is the day to do it because we're in the shadow of that bulge of first home buyers right because there's only a finite pool of potential first home buyers each year we've just brought forward two years worth of first home buying from the next five-year period into the last two years so if you wanted to have a period of time where you could do this and not have huge price effects this next little window is the time to do it and in terms of the price effects I think you've got to keep in mind that the same argument that if people use their super for 1st home buying, prices will go up. Well, that's the same argument you could apply. Well, if we give people a pay rise, prices will go up, right? Uh, what's the point in getting a wage increase because you're just going to bid up more for your house? So I think, you know, the effect is going to be moderated because, you know, uh, people aren't going to spend a 100% of it on, on the house and banks will assess, you know, serviceability and other things. Uh, And secondly, we're in the shadow of this sort of first home buying bubble. So if we were going to do it and it's, I've gone from very much against it to, yeah, if if you're going to do it, now's the time. I don't see any fundamental long-run issues with it, it's going to be a huge advantage to first-home buyers over investors in the market, then now's the time to do it.
0: I just moved negative gearing, mate, for what it's worth. I know it's on a housing podcast, but I think you get the same result and let people keep their money in super and not have the same housing price effects. But I, I, to your point, if you're going to do it, I think we can absolutely agree 100%. If you're going to do it, now is the time. I think that's a,
1: I completely agree with that. Mm, interesting. I was just going to say, uh, quickly, Cam, I agree with both of you a little bit. Like I, I can see how the market would be increased if you give people access to this um, enormous fund of money, but at the same time, home ownership to me seems to be a a, a very, very big differentiator between the wealthy and the non wealthy. And I think that like if you're going to put money to something, a home's it, it makes a lot of sense, like a lot of sense. And yeah, that, that that's that's where, I'm, where I sit with it.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, the, the best way to sidestep uh, – sorry, we're turning it into a housing podcast. The best way to <laughs> sidestep too many price effects, uh, and that's why, you know, we talked about the Singapore system last time, Matt, is the government can just start building houses and sell them at a fixed price to people using their super, right? And so, the, you know, there won't be a price effect. You can just say, hey, here's a bunch of price-regulated dwellings. We're just going to go out and build them. You can use your super for these, but – um this is the set price we're not going to auction them off if you miss out we'll do a lottery so so that's sort of the tie in to my other thoughts on housing but I, I do feel like you know it would be a once off change to a new equilibrium that would be the economic way of describing it of letting people use their super housing it would be a, and, and if you're going to have that transition you know 2023 and 24 is probably a good time to have it okay
1: interesting All right. We'll move on to the next question or the next topic. I actually don't have a list of all the changes that have ever been made by super or for super. I think (laughs) it is a big list. Yeah. It's a, it's a huge list (laughs) to my knowledge. Correct me if I'm wrong. Either of you two, I don't believe there's been major changes and you can debate about what major actually means, but there is changes to super. There has been changes, a lot of changes to super. And we're going to talk about one of the proposed changes in a second. Is this eroding the confidence in the system as a whole and do you think it's reasonable for some Australians to think if they're making all these changes already, what hope do I have that the system is going to look anything like it does now in potentially 40 years when I can access it? Cam, I'll kick it to you to start with.
2: Look, uh, yeah, I'm not a super and The changes, I think the last uh, the Liberal government got rid of one of the caps on on balances or tax breaks. The main change has been to increase the amount of your salary that you're forced to pay into it, right? And it's been Labor's policy to ratchet it up from, you know, it started at 3% as a deferred pay rise for the unions um, because they were worried about inflation, said, you can have your pay rise, but you can't spend it. So we'll put it in this account. And then when Paul Keating said, no, that's for retirement, um, you know, and you've got to pay more, the unions got really upset about it in the 90s and said, no, no, no. You said it was a deferred pay rise. Now you're not letting us get it and now you're making us spend more. So I, I do find it puzzling, the, the evolution of super historically and that we've come to 2023 and no one knows what it's for, the purpose of super, right? So maybe Scott can can answer some of the other key changes.
0: I'll, I'll keep it brief. Uh, yeah, the, the increase over time has been the major one. Maybe, maybe the – I don't mean political particularly – One of the cleverest ways of this is that the changes that have been made are not obvious to most of us, which is maybe the cleverest thing if you wanted to appeal to a particular demographic and get them to vote for you. So the the ability to roll over business profits in a super effectively tax-free uh, you can contribute up to three hundred thousand dollars over three years. Some of those limits, we you're not three of us probably don't know because we're not in that sort of money. But you know, in, in that those sort of circumstances, there are some really nice boondoggles built into superannuation, which is how you get a five hundred million dollar self managed super fund, right?
1: Just on that, Scott, because I didn't know about that. Are you saying that you can roll, you can defer three hundred thousand dollars of business income into a personal super account?
0: Uh, so there are tax CGT free sales of small businesses. Yeah, and as well as that, oh, okay. you can then, but gotcha. you, you can yeah. also then put in. I think it's a hundred, three hundred grand every three years or over three years. I can't remember now. I, I'm not a super expert either in terms of personal finance. I'm a general finance guy, but you can put in hundreds of thousands of dollars effectively with zero tax implication, and add it to your super balance, which then gets massive, right? Which is part of how you get to these people with more than three million dollars in super in the first place, and it's why the idea of a Limit of some description. I wouldn't use a cap, but it's why it makes some degree of sense. Um, can it justifiably risk people? Uh, no, it, it's it's a political construct. Um, life changes all the time. People don't say, "I don't work because my tax rate might change," so I'm I'm not confident in the employment system anymore. Right? It's 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 political. It's political. I'm trying to be. I'm trying to keep this podcast PG. Political <laughs> rubbish, which is designed. To- to create doubt, to either look after your base or get people to vote for you, depending on which way you want to look at it. Does it change a lot? Yes. COVID rules changed a lot because science changed. Policies change a lot because we learn new things and we do new things, we have new priorities, new things to spend money on. The fact that government policies for every industry change every single year, uh, we don't say, I'm not going to go to work, I'm not going to have a business because they might change the rules. It's a a stupid argument. I don't blame people for falling for it, by the way, because – it's a very persuasive argument. Of they're changing it again. They're, didn't they change it last time? Didn't they change it the time before. I hate the fact they keep changing it. By the way, you know who loves the changes. Tax accountants and superannuation yeah. trustees, right? So let's not pretend they care about it. They love it. If it hadn't changed for ten years, <laughs> there'd be half the number of accountants. So don't, don't, don't fall for that one.
2: And all the changes that you know skew tax benefits to certain interest groups uh, are loved, right? There's never any uncertainty when the benefits yeah. to you, right? <laughs> oh, I, I never know if it's going to change in my favour in the future, right? Um, yeah. Exactly. So
0: what, what if it's made even better? That'd be terrible. Yeah. If
2: if you just read the press as just. A lot of rich self interested people talking their book you will to go a long way to understanding what's going on um you know the fact that there's an outcry over superannuation balance you know just removing tax advantages once you've got three million dollars in there and and however that's administered, and I think that's you know we we agree that it's a bit cumbersome it's It's only a hundred thousand people, and there's twenty five million of us right, and for some reason that opinion is the headline on all the press rather than the opposite, which would be the 99-point-whatever percent of people. So, yeah, that's kind of bizarre as well.
0: Whose lives are improved because the extra tax is collected and therefore they can bring, government can provide more services. Um, yeah. But I would say I don't blame people for believing it, right, because it's a really seductive line. So – so to Cam's point, it is absolutely the headlines and the talking heads, but there's a lot of people there who, who hear it and believe it and take it in because we're aspirational and we want to believe we might be those people one day or we have our political leanings, or ideological perspectives. So it's not that there's only those people talking about those the only people who think it. Um, I hear it from people. I hear it from friends. I hear it from people I talk to who say the same thing to me, parroting lines they've heard elsewhere because it resonates. So it, it is it is absolutely self-interest. It's driving the the, the lines in the first instance, but don't don't believe that it's not a potent political force because I think it absolutely is.
1: Yeah, fair, fair point. Fair point. I think uh, the 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 people that were playing by the rules and now the rules have changed on them. It's hard for a lot of Australians to feel sorry for people with half a billion dollars, you know, in their super fund, or even the the percentage of people with over three million dollars. It's sort of like okay tough cookie sort of thing, um, but I'm pretty sure you're going to be okay. And that, that brings us back to like the, our earlier points of like what is the purpose of super? Because the more I read about it and the more I learn, and to be honest, my understanding is the majority of changes has been more beneficial to a lot of oh, people. Oh, yeah, gotcha. It's, yeah. it's got no, – yeah, I exactly. I can't
0: remember the last change that wasn't quite frankly. I, I can't it, remember why exactly. super was made less attractive. The, the the first thing might be the accumulation of pension phase. Account. That's probably the big one recently where they said you can only have a certain amount tax-free, the rest has to be taxed. So that that's the – I'll say big one in air quotes, that's the big public sized one. If you've got $5 million, it makes a difference because there used to be no tax on retirement. Now it's only up to 1.7, soon to be $1.9 million. So yeah, that was, that's, that's probably the biggest recent change that is, that has negatively affected superannuance. But I think that's, that's the first one, significantly one I can remember. There'll be people yelling at the, yelling at the podcast now saying, no, no, I remember this thing and that thing. Yeah. They're probably right, but I'm sure, we're, I'm sure we're <laughs> we're one a i are But yeah. But
1: my point is like, it's, it's been, uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with both years that there's going to be changes. It's just, you know, that's life. And the changes that I've seen, yeah, have been pretty beneficial for a lot of people, which I guess brings us back to the original point, which we won't get back into. But like <laughs> the more I read about it, the more on. I learn is like, is it just the rich getting richer? Like is super being set up that a lot of people that could have self-funded their retirement are just... Becoming richer through this system, which begs the point, what, what is the purpose of super? Is it to improve the lives of Australians that otherwise wouldn't have saved for retirement? Or is it just making rich people richer? You know, it's an interesting point to ponder.
0: I think it's, and it's my honest answer. It's, it's both, right? It's, it's, I think it absolutely is making rich people richer because they would have invested at marginal tax rates. Now they get to invest at concessional tax rates. That's, that's very, very good for them. And that's why I would tax their incomes. But I again, I'll speak to. I won't. I won't mention my family members. But I there are family members who have super who wouldn't have saved because they chose not to, didn't want to, didn't have the circumstances that I'm sure will have a better retirement than they would have otherwise. And these are these are average people, uh, not not university educated, like just good working people who do their thing. You know, they they will be much better off because of super than they would have been otherwise. So, yeah, I know Cam disagrees and we don't want to get back into it, but to your point, I think it's, it's absolutely both, right? And that's that's why I think we shouldn't say it's this system or nothing. It's how would we improve the system? Maybe to the point of Cam saying let's scrap it all together, but there's a there's a continuum which is we can absolutely agree the current thing is a, a collection of doggles and tax breaks and inheritance estate planning tools, right? It, it's fun. It's fundamentally been screwed up, but whether or not that means it should be you – know, I don't think the opposite of either this or nothing – again, not that I'm saying Cam is saying that, but just in the conversation it's not – is this the Probably no. Okay, let's get rid of it. There's a range of potential outcomes, including as far as saying let's get rid of it, and just replace it with a pension.
2: Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it, clearly, clearly, it's the fact that it's super is essentially two things: compulsory savings and tax advantages to those savings means that it's going to amplify all the. Economic inequalities of working life into retirement, like, uh, because the more you have, the more tax advantages you, you can get. But, um, maybe I just want to briefly respond and make the case of why scrapping super is, is an improvement on the system, like why it's a positive. For starters, everyone's just gets a pay rise in their bank account every day. Every single working Australian will have more money in their bank account to spend. Now they might want to save some of that and many will, but we'll get to tax it first and those who need it. We can spend it on their daily lives. If you allow people to withdraw a small amount of their super each year until the system is unwound, say $10,000 a year, remember the median super account only has $17,000 in it. So half of superannuation accounts will be gone in two years. That's $10,000 of extra money circulating in the economy. And that's, you know, might not be the ideal time today to do that, you know, if, if you're thinking about managing the macro economy and inflation. But it might be in the next couple of years, and you could certainly manipulate that maximum withdrawal based on economic conditions as you unwind the system. But remember in during COVID, we said, do you know what's going to stimulate the economy? Taking money out of super, not putting money into super. So if you think about that effect over, you know, the next decade, you know, you're going to have a bigger economy to support the retirees in the future. So not only are working people earning, having more money, uh, spending more money, probably, you know, you know first time buyers are going to be more likely to buy a house if they've got, you know, 20, 50, 80 grand out of their super for a deposit. Also, the economy will be bigger in the future. So, so that's my p- sort of positive case that, that, you know, unwinding it is, is hugely beneficial in terms of the macroeconomics. So I just wanted to respond with that. Sure.
1: Well, uh, we'll move on to the, uh, the next topic now. I have a quote from the AFR and it starts with, Labor's plan to legislate a purpose for super, superannuation and deploy the 3.3 trillion in savings for national building has been criticized by former banker David Murray, who said it is not the place for the government to decide investments. End quote. This starts to get, I, I know that this is a proposal. It's not what is actually happening, but for me, that feels slightly uneasy if they're proposing that or if they have Cam, I'll kick it to you. I'm not too sure if I picked on you last time, but I'll pick on you again. Why are they investing super in capital projects? And do you think this is a good idea? Or why are they proposing so?
2: Look, it's not clear to me exactly what's being proposed, but the general gist of the chatter is that there's a lot of things government wants to spend money on. There's a lot of social economic objectives. And they don't like, you know, they, they have this sort of budgetary model of the world in mind. And they're like, well, maybe if someone else pays, it'd be good. Of course. Superannuation of course. <laughs> accounts have lots of money in them. Maybe if they make the investment instead of us, that'll be good. So, so that's the sort of logic. And so, you know, for example, there's a lot of talk of super accounts investing in build to rent housing and social housing and this and that. But at the end of the day, right? Do you want super to make money or do you want it to lose money for social purposes? Right. Because if you want to do that, you know, you've got your own tax system to do that. So there's this real conflict between social objectives of investment that don't necessarily make the best returns and economic and financial objectives of super investment that that will. And you end up with a lot of perverse things like the Queensland government privatizing some real estate it owns, selling it to a super fund so that the super fund can build a building and the government can rent it back to the super fund to generate an income for the fund, which is a huge tax cost to the state to pay the rent to the fund to build the building. you know. So they're essentially saying, we're going to privatize state assets so super has something to invest in, but we're going to hopefully You know, do it in a socially beneficial way. But, but, you know, I I see a lot of contradictions there if you want to do something that genuinely doesn't have a market price. So there's there's two contradictions. One, you know, if it's socially beneficial and it's not priced and it's not the best return, you don't really want your compulsory savings investing in it, right? And, And two, we're incentivized to create these privatized state entities so that super funds can invest in them. But all we're doing then is subsidizing the super system through tax breaks which is the very thing we think the system is trying to avoid right because we're using taxes to raise money to pay rent to rent the previously owned buildings off the super fund right so it's this great big financial trickery and that's again why forty-five thousand people work in this industry (laughs) because you got to keep this show on the road right and and have you know a government paying a super fund paying a member recycling all this stuff around like a great big uh, sort of financial merry-go-round, and and the the ticket clippers are the sort of main beneficiaries. Anyway, that's my rent. Probably Scott, that's a good answer.
0: No, I, Cam. So, firstly, mate, um, just you don't need me to say this. Listeners don't need me to either. But kudos to you for saying. There are reasons why you wouldn't do it, despite the fact you'd happily dismantle super and use the money for social good anyway. So, yeah, uh, you know, I think that's—I think it's—you know—good of you, know, yeah. you to say that and actually it, it, it answer the question on its merits. Um, uh, for, and I, I completely agree. There, there is there is no reason to use superannuation money for that purpose. It, it makes it makes no logical sense uh, other than for political purposes. And and political purposes I don't even mean party politics. We've, uh, ironically. Governments have met – here's the great trick, right? This, this gets political and ideological. I'm, I don't really care. We're far enough into the podcast. If people are still listening, they'll, they'll bear with me. Uh, <laughs> here's, the, here's the great trick, right? We are running a massive government deficit. We have massive government debt. And at the same time, the governments have convinced us that government debt is bad. And so the government shouldn't take on the debt to build these social projects. They should use superannuation funds instead. And, and to Cam's point, the structure of then you pay someone you subsidize someone to do what you could otherwise do yourself, probably for cheaper because your rates of return and your borrowing costs are lower because you're a sovereign government. And the whole thing rolls around, right? So there's this great three-card trick where you actually manage to do three things that are entirely opposite to each other at the same time convincing people that each one of those is still worth doing. And, and they, they justify they justify their own merits. And they're simply not. The government should borrow to do those things, But at the same time, by the way, they should be running a stupidly large government deficit with a a structurally unbalanced budget. So you've got all these things happening at the same time because no one's going to make a hard decision. And that's why this conversation inevitably ends up in the political questions and answers rather than if you were in charge for a day, what would you do? It becomes what are those people in charge prepared to do and what are the opposition prepared to allow them to do? I have a a saying in, in, in business, which is you're only as profitable as your least rational competitor allows you to be. So think about Qantas, right, or Virgin or something. You, you know, you, you, can only, you can only set your prices to compete with your least rational competitor. In politics, it's actually the same. You're, 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 only, you're only able to act in the national interest to the extent that your least rational, the only, opposition of whatever stripe, right, it's not a, not a, not a party political version, allows you to be. A, a government that said, I would like to do these things because it's the interest of the, of the country, when a scare campaign is run against them in whatever direction, left, right, the right left, don't okay. care. That you you have you can only do what you can convince fifty one percent of the people will, will let you do with a opposition that chooses to wedge you and peddle inaccuracies and inconsistencies and straight out lies to try and get you to vote for them instead. And so that's kind of again, it's I don't want to get into politics necessarily of it, but that's that's part of it. So we should be funding those projects if they are worthy projects out of very low cost government debt. We should be raising sufficient taxation to pay for those projects as required. That would be the simplest, easiest, smartest, most efficient, lowest cost way to provide it without bastardising other systems, but the reality is governments have decided that's an easier
1: option for ideological and electoral reasons. Mm. It's a bit of a weird one. Like for me, the government has legislation that forces you to allocate 10% of your savings to this fund and then they're using part of that fund to- Exactly. That's it.
2: it, That's exactly it. Yep. Yep. What makes that different from just tax, right? That's the thing. You know, you come full circle that if you're going to spend- if the superannuation fund is going to spend money on public projects, then you're essentially just taxing people 10% of their income, pretending that it's not a tax and, you know, and then It's also sometimes additional
0: tax revenues anyway because the returns don't suck up. Yeah. That's
2: right. So, you know, it's a, it's a perverse merry-go-round and I think, um, you know, it, it would be hard to... F- well, well, you know, you'd be surprised, actually, who disagrees with both of us. Uh, um, <laughs> you'd be surprised so many economists go, yeah, but isn't it better if the super fund owns the exact same building and the government rents it off the fund? And then it's-? I'm like, "What? why? <laughs> like, you know, uh, do you not like the government making money or owning its own assets? Do you like... You know, yeah,
1: oh, you're gonna to have to tell me. The Economist can we'll, we'll see we can get get them on. Just for get on Twitter. Day. Just get yeah, on Twitter, and,
2: and I'll I'll write something. they will come out of the woodwork. Yeah, right.
1: I mean, g- generally speaking, I'll, I'm a fan. I don't know about you guys, but generally speaking, I know there's exceptions to this. I like a uh, bottom up approach to a, a, a lot of issues, and I understand there's some issues, uh, and not even going past super that needs government intervention, and you need it pushed down from the top. But I'm a I'm a big Free market capitalist myself, I believe you are as well, Scott, and I think that solves a lot of issues—not all, but a lot—and to me, this yeah just doesn't doesn't pass the the pub test in my eyes. So I will
0: say, just quickly jump in. I'm not a free market capitalist. I'm a, a well regulated market capitalist or a fair market capitalist, right. okay. Um, okay. and I, I make fair that enough. distinction because. I think in, in the in the pragmatic real world. So in, in the utopian world, Karl Marx is right, and we should share everything; and it's all fine, right? So, <laughs> so you know, <laughs> yes. let, no, this would this be a quote of the podcast. But ah, oh, Phillips bloody communist. I don't think I don't think anyone would say if we could have a system where we all worked as little as we had to, we all had as much as we need, that would be great. I think I think I don't think too many people would say, "No, screw you, Jack. I want I want you to be poor so I can be rich," right? Some people would, and that's fine. I'm not amongst them. So that's that's in, in a theoretical utopia. That's great. In a pragmatic world. Capitalism does the least worst job of allocating resources, but it tends to excesses, and so quality, well-regulated entities, regulators, legislation is required to curb the excesses of capitalism to make sure we get the least worst outcome possible, which, to my view, is a well-regulated democratic capitalism. Now, if people disagree on that, they're welcome to. So I, I, I'm with you, mate, in the sense that I don't think government should do stuff that they don't have to do that done well enough elsewhere because it adds bureaucracy and we're sort of super the bureaucracy there, right? I, th- I think, again, to about dead weight losses and, and friction and all that kind of stuff, I think if, if, I, if, I, if an interaction of you and I can do a perfectly fine job that either has meaningfully worse off or taken advantage of, that's great. But where capitalism tends to excessive oligopolies and monopolies, where it tends to imbalances of power between parties in a, in a conversation, when the safety nets don't exist naturally then we should have governments to do those things. I I'm not trying to make a make an opposite point for the sake of it, Matt. I just wanted you know, free market capitalism tends to be the phrase. I, I don't think capitalism needs to be free market. I think it can be and you're welcome to your view, of course, Matt. I'm not saying you're wrong. I just my view is is fair or well regulated markets where the economy here's the other thing. The economy should function in the service of the society. And if we get that order right, then we're we're in a much better position rather than but it's the economy What's the impact? It doesn't matter. I get to do what I want to do. It's you know. I think society comes first. The economy is the democratic capitalism is the best model we have, in my view. Now, I'm biased because we live in one, but I haven't seen a better system work. Better, better system be designed and don't work. But the the, the least worst system so far is, I think, well regulated democratic capitalism. Do you have any comments on that, Kat?
2: Yeah, no. I th- I think we're we're very much on the same page, and I think that's why we can actually talk about these very intricate details and tax settings because we're not like, oh, it's free market, it's this and that. It's like, well. What regulations work to get the outcome we want in this circumstance? And it's very hard to get many people to that point to say, hey, can you just put your ideology to the side? We've had free markets here. This is the outcome. We're going to try and improve on that here or vice versa. This department is just imploding on itself. The best thing here to do is privatise this and open it up and have another group of bureaucrats manage that process because that's failing and I'm very pragmatic about which way it goes. Uh, if you, you know, you'd read in my book Gamer Mates about political favouritism, or well, the new book is called Rigged: How Networks of Powerful Mates Rip Off Everyday Australians. In some circumstances, I'm saying this industry is not not working. We should we should make the university sector more competitive and facilitate more competition. And in other industries like banking, we say why don't, why can't consumers get an account at the public bank the reserve bank and have just no fee accounts for free so that the private banks really have to compete to offer something better so it's really just that that pragmatic whatever works i like to say i'm a what works economist just go and look around and see Measured what by the are absolutely 100%. um and there's you know there's hundreds of experiments going on around the world and historically in every country uh and that's what we should should look to um in every country, and this is especially true in housing, every country has its own little bubble in housing. They're all having the exact same conversation, and they're all blaming their local politicians for the global housing boom of the last two years, and now the rental boom of the last six months. Everyone's like, "No, it's the Irish councillor so and so who did this law," and someone in California is like, "No, it's this guy here and his nimby." And then it's, "I'm like, mate, it's the global boom. Just look around at what's working elsewhere." So, that's, yeah, I think we're very like-minded on that.
1: That's a very funny point, isn't it, Cal? I mean, it's all, the same issue all over the world and, yeah, they think it's just their their local MP that's to that's blame. That's right
2: and it's true on Super as well, right? So, we can look to New Zealand, we can look to Singapore, we can look to Germany, we can look to Japan and go, hey, you know, there's a lot of public systems that just function fine. We could copy any of them. There's a sort of semi-private Singapore style where you've got compulsory savings, but you use it for health insurance, housing, and a bunch of other things. So, it's very much a sort of privatized social welfare system, but it's managed very well and it works. So And, and in Switzerland, they have a very similar, you know, pro, um, regulated but private health insurance system. And that works fine there as well. So, you can look around and and, you know, they're not changing it because it's working. They're much better than average. And you don't want to rock the boat and there's a risk to change. So, anyway, we, we can do the same with super as
1: well. Yeah, agreed. All right, let's move on to the next topic. Treasurer Jim Chalmers has hinted at reigning in tax breaks for super balances over $3 million in the May budget while assuring the vast bulk of savers of no changes to concessional tax rates, including for incomes up to 250000 This is the super cap that we alluded to earlier in the podcast, but... I mean, it is the topic of the week, so we'll do a bit of a um, – have a specific conversation about it now. Uh, Scott, I'll kick it over to you. These proposed supercats, maybe give the audience a little bit of background about what they are exactly and are you for or against it? Okay. So,
0: we should say there's no proposal, uh, again, because politics is politics – They've been asked questions and they've referred to other people's work that maybe something like $3 million should be considered, at least at the time of recording this podcast. It's the it's the politics of I don't want to make a statement that I can't go back on. So if I want to change my way later, I say, oh, we were just talking about it as an idea or someone else raised it. It was never our policy. So I can't tell you about the specifics of the policy because there isn't one. So let, let's go a little bit back. Once upon a time, when you retired, you would turn your superannuation account balance from an accumulation, in other words, add up, contribute to, let grow, into a pension phase, which is when you draw down – a minimum percentage every year of your super balance. And in return, you were taxed at 0% once you hit that pension phase. Effectively, once you retired, you didn't have to convert it. But once you converted it, you have zero tax, but you have to take out a small percentage of the balance each year. So that's the pension phase. Relatively recently, I don't know when, it was during Morrison's term, I'm pretty sure, almost certainly the last term, the government decided that you couldn't convert the whole thing to a tax-free pension. You had a maximum balance you could convert to a pension, which was, I think, originally $1.6 million, then became $1.7, then became $1.9. Million. So you could take that much money, put it in your pension account. That would be 0% tax. The rest had to stay in the accumulation account, which would be taxed at 15%. Again, if this is complex, I agree. It's ridiculous. It's what polishers come up with. So that's where we are today, but you can have an unlimited amount in that accumulation phase account, taxed at 15%, including the half a billion dollars we talked about earlier. The proposal as it has been put forward and the government's happy to talk about <laughs> is that that accumulation ca- account would be capped. So the combined total of your super balance would be $3 million. So in the example we're using now, soon it'll be 1.9 million in the, in the pension phase. another 1.1 in the accumulation phase, total of three. That would be the cap of your super. Now they haven't said what would happen above that, whether they would make you take out the difference, whether the difference would be taxed at, at a full, some sort of full tax rate, which would be yet to be announced. It's all a bit silly, again, for reasons I've talked about. So that, that's the proposal, or at least the this, that, that's the kind of – the proposal they're talking about, not their proposal, but the proposal they're happy to talk about. What it would do is it would take 100 – I think it's 116-odd thousand accounts, as we said before, who in theory would either have to take some money out, reduce their balance to $3 million, or somehow be taxed differently on that excess amount. Again, they haven't said what that would be. I think it's better than nothing. I think it's better than the current system. So in the spirit of is it an improvement? Yes, by definition, because if you have more than three million dollars in super, I don't think it's reasonable you are able to access concessional contributions. And here's my quick quick aside. Here's, here's the bottom line, right? The tax base is the tax base. The government spends X billion dollars. Cam's probably got the numbers off the back of his head on all of the services that we're used to receiving: welfare, defense, health, etc. etc. or all the way down, right? If I, as a really super, super rich superannual with $84 million in super, pay 15% tax rather than 30, that's money that comes out of the tax revenue. Either the government's got to spend less or someone else has got to pay more. The person that camps on about the bottom third of the, of the population who are paying tax now, they're paying more tax than they'd have to because I'm paying less than I could, right? So it just starts there. And it starts with, is it reasonable someone with more than $3 million gets access in super alone, not, not, not getting other wealth? Gets access to concessional taxation when someone on 80 grand is paying a much, much higher rate of tax than they are? And I think it's a very easy answer, which is no. So yes, it absolutely shouldn't have a cap on them. I'll finish really quickly, Matt, with this. Let's let's take those balances I talked about. You have one point, well, I'll say 1.9 because that's what's going to be soon. Million dollars, tax-free. Whatever you earn on that, tax-free. Let's say you invested in shares, you get 10% a year on average, right? We can debate the assumptions. That's 190 grand tax free. Free. Let that sink in, right? The next one point even under the government's proposal, the next one point one million dollars. So you earn ten percent of that, hundred and ten grand at fifteen percent tax. So let's call that six. Let's seventeen grand tax. You can earn three hundred thousand dollars a year before tax, pay seventeen thousand dollars in tax, which is barely what six and a half percent tax rate. So you earn three hundred grand, you pay six percent tax. Someone on eighty grand a year as a firefighter or a nurse or a copper or a factory worker or a teacher. Pays, what, a marginal rate of 30%? Now, the, the average rate is different because it's it's a marginal progressive, progressive system. But they're paying literally, the $300,000 income earners paying 5 or 6% tax. I, I, even that is extraordinarily generous to the point of close to dystopian, right? Now, there's people out there with that much money yelling at the podcast saying they pay tax all their lives, they deserve it, all that sort of stuff. Okay, let's say that view is... is Maybe you do deserve it. Maybe you pay tax all your life. If you can look that copper or nurse or fiery or teacher in the eye and say, I should pay less tax on my 300 grand than you pay on your 85 grand, 90 grand salary and do it with a straight face, then good luck. Cause I can't. And so, like, fundamentally, a cap is better than nothing because the moment it's uncapped. So that's a win. Even that is extraordinarily generous. Now, maybe they don't earn 10%, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But, but fundamentally, that's why I would do it on income, not on balance. Cause if you're nothing on it, then taxing people for the sake of having an amount of money is a different question. But, I think it's a really, really easy answer. Yes, a cap is good. <laughs> Cam,
2: uh, I'm just going to agree uh, with the fundamental principle Scott was talking about. <laughs> I don't think I could look a nurse in the eye if I'm sitting there with three million in my bank account, rock up to hospital in a Ferrari. She's putting, <laughs> you know, she's putting, she's putting this the needle in my arm, and I'll be like, sorry, doll, that's um, uh, you know, you've got to pay an extra five grand this year, so I don't have to pay any tax. Right, there like even better. Yeah, the administration of the cap, you know, you want the simplest way you can do it. And I think Scott's right about taxing income flows is generally much, much easier. Um, so, if you know, if you're going to cap a balance and then force that account at three million to pay anything it earns over into another account as an income and then tax that, I don't know how it would work, but um, hopefully... The accountants don't get too involved and create a whole new industry for themselves.
1: (laughs) That's, yeah, that's great. Okay. So, we're both of you are in agreement that the cap would be an improvement to the system. Yeah. I think uh, from what I'm hearing and seeing online, Twitter, et cetera, most people are saying that as well. I haven't really heard too many people saying it's a bad thing, other than, the occasional super rich millionaire
2: that yeah, yeah I've been to paying tax teal my whole life. The politicians right in those oh, yes, become electors. That was very
0: disappointing. Those I did see on that? Board
2: <laughs> and yeah. decided that that they're only left for their local environment, and they you know their hard right don't tax the wealthy for everything else. Yeah, that was really disappointing, and sort of shows you the nature of politics. You try your best to vote someone new in, and they're still responding to these you know. They want to get elected again, right? Um,
1: I was going to say, are they just responding to their voter base, which is yeah. what they're being elected yes. to do? 100%.
2: Yeah. So, I guess it's, we're just pointing out it's a lot of the hypocrisy of, of politics. That's all. Yep,
1: that's all it is. Interesting. Okay, gents, I've reached the end of my questions. Is there anything else that you would like to bring up before we finish up the podcast here? Uh, Scott, I'll start with you.
0: Uh, lots. These the, the, this, 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 this conversations go in a million different directions, right? I think the- I think the fundamental question on – it's all interlinked. You know, housing – so here's – I will finish with one point. The politicians and the ideologues and the talking heads and the best interests are very good at creating artificial binary questions. Would you like housing or super? Do you want government debt or services? Do you want whatever? And so each each of those questions implies that you have to make a binary choice and there is no other alternative available to you. And I think that's a really important distinction to make. Because there are other solutions to the housing problem than using super. There are other solutions to aged care than using super. There are other solutions to everything else, right? Debt versus, you know, versus services. Well, actually, there's, you can raise taxes on somebody else. How about that? You know, and I'm I'm not necessarily a high tax guy, but I'm certainly not a low tax for for its own sake guy. And I'm certainly not a, you know, coddle the wealthy so that the the poor have to suffer because they don't want to pay more than X cents of the dollar in tax. So I think with all of these conversations, and they're all linked to, by the way. So, you know, housing is related to super and super related to pensions and pensions are related to government deficit and deficits related to spending and spending is infrastructure and, and around and around we go. And so you never quite finish these conversations. So I guess I just want people to, to think about the fairness of the respective systems and the puts and takes that are required. And to simply ask yourself, your you is from first principles, what would you design to achieve the aims you wanted to achieve? And it may be Cam's solution, it may be mine, it may be someone else's. And what trade offs would there be required? And what's fair to, what? what are fair trade offs to make? Governments have, there used to be some, we actually increased taxes, right? Well, there was, there was that time, right? And, and, and we see that as so universally negative and obviously not doable. We fall into the idea of, well, actually, maybe to Cam's point, government is better to provide that service. NDIS is a great one, right? We, we created, I, I don't think it works particularly well, by the way. Um, creating artificial markets is a whole different problem. But the idea of we have this need, we're going to fund it, cool. Or the Brisbane flood levy, or the Medicare levy itself, when it first came in, that was a new tax, right? Now, again, we can argue about how well the money's been used, and some people will say, "Yeah, but government wastes it." I'm yet to see a person, by the way, who can identify the waste. They just have this ideological view that there must be waste, and therefore it's terrible. There probably is, by the way. It's a massive, massive, massive bureaucracy. that by definition must be waste. But the idea of we shouldn't pay more in taxes because of X, or we can't cut services because of Y, or whatever those things are, just remember these aren't these aren't binary questions. And if you're genuinely going to approach an issue like this, you've got to start from first principles, not from can I defend or destroy the current system, but how would you design it? And, and that what does that tell you about the breaks between what you would design and what the current system looks like? And if you do that, then you start to – Cam's done a great job from a different perspective of doing exactly that and saying, okay, well – how would we design retirement? Income? What would we do in this area to do these things? I just would really encourage your listeners. Matt, I'm sure they are because they're smart people listening to this podcast, but they should be thinking from first principles. What does this look like? How do I make this work? How would I design it if vested interests weren't involved? That's your starting point, right? Now, you, then, there's real politic and there's other issues that fall in, and you have to make compromises, and that's just life. But that should be a proper starting point. That's why this conversation is so useful because Cam and I aren't running for office. We don't work for a superannuation fund. We're not. We're not tax accountants. You know, we're just people saying, "Hey, I have a real interest in this area. Hopefully, have a little bit of expertise and knowledge with some fresh thinking that's you know maybe outside the no, no pun intended, Cam. Uh, you know, the, the, outside the uh, <laughs> outside the, the you know the orthodoxy and with no vested interest. What would I do? And I think. Sometimes, by the way, it's okay to say I'm going to lose a bit of money here. I don't want stage. I'm going to tangent. I don't want stage three tax cuts for reasons we'll talk about a different stage. I, it will cost me money. I I will, I will have more money if stage three tax cuts go through. I think they're a bad idea. I will happily give that money up if I can convince everybody else that it's better used for other services. That's um, that's all too rare. Not that I'm a bloody. I'm not saying I'm, I'm special. I just think there's not enough people who say actually, you know what? It's not unreasonable for me to go go with that a little bit, particularly a little bit extra so that other people have a little bit more. I think that's kind of a fundamental underpinning of our democracy.
2: Yeah. Mm,
1: yeah, very well said, uh, Scott. And this is why these conversations are so important, to have a debate just to talk uh, about this, this topic, this conversation with two reasonable people and go back and forth to reach a better conclusion, which ultimately benefits everyone in the long run. And I was just going to make a point there, Scott. In previous years, I've been quite critical of the government um, and how they waste a lot of money. And I, I've worked for the government for yeah. 11 years. I've seen it. Um, I've been on the, the front line of seeing just how much stuff gets done, the bureaucracy, the, you know. <laughs> and I have to say that I've recently – come around to the idea that it is just a product of the system. You are going to get some waste and you shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, and I've been following you for a few years now, Scott, and a lot of that has actually come from your insights. Um So I'm changing my mind slowly. I'm just, you know, I'm getting older, I'm learning. So this is, uh, this is. I just love these conversations and listening to two people that don't have a vested interest speak about this topic, which is, is really cool, I think. Cam, anything you wanted to end on, mate?
2: Yeah, uh, I just wanted to... Agree again on that. On the topic of waste, you know, I, I've worked in the government as well before. But one of the examples that came up recently was, uh, you know, private invested investors gave WeWork twenty two billion dollars, <laughs> and, and lost and lost twenty one billion of it. And then the question is, well, you know, government waste, private waste. You know, we just see it differently. We kind of tend to overlook it because we, we know that it's a natural part of the private markets that some people succeed and some fail. And so we sort of, we don't even count it or look for it. So there's that, uh, on the public health system, you know, the cost of a procedure on average in the public health system is about half of what it is in the private system. So, you know, there's a lot of waste, but there are in any big, big system, right? And speaking of systems, I think that's, you know, my contribution to Scott's final point is we need to think about system design and acknowledge that within that system, everybody, the losers are going to argue against it. The winners <laughs> will argue for it. But in, unless you're talking system design and what's overall better for society. And, and I think it's, it's one of those thought experiments. If you were born to any random person in this society, You know, that's the way you should think of it. What is the society I want to live in where I could be born to any random person in that society? You know, is it fair and just enough and, you know, is it redistributive enough but does it have the flexibility and all those good things that, you know, private sort of capitalism has – I think that's the way to do it and I think that's probably where we're very like-minded and are able to have this conversation because we're thinking about the system, not my story. Oh, well, I did this and I get this or, you know, my kids are going to do this or my parents did this. You know, we we are able to think about the system and I think that's, you know, that's the key issue here and we don't get enough of it uh, in the press for sure. Mm,
1: Doesn't sell as many newspapers. Uh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Which is, hey, that's the business of these media companies. I think people lose sight of that sometimes. That they're not in the business of informing you; they're in the business of selling clicks and newspapers. That's
2: right. I always say, if it's in the news, that's abnormal. It's not normal, right? It's only there so that your your sob story about someone with this that's there because it's very unusual. It's not represent. If it was representative, we'd all be bored and no one would want to read about it, right? So just. I always, you know, once you flip to that, you know, you read the news in a very different way. Mm, Absolutely.
1: All right. Let's wrap it up there. It's been a monster podcast. Might have to split it into two parts. I'll speak to Adam about what we're going to (laughs) do. But guys, Cam Scott, this has been an amazing conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed it personally, and I'm sure the listeners out there will enjoy it too. Thank you so much for coming on and making the time to be with us
2: today. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Matt. Uh, thanks, Cam.
0: Thanks, Matt. It's Absolute pleasure. I I got more of it. The listeners did. I'm sure it's just it's just great to have a really thoughtful, useful conversation with some people who mean to find the better outcome. That that's that's what I love about the conversation. So thank you for the opportunity.
1: No worries. All right. See you.
2: Bye.